Y'all can be seated. I got a question for the husbands in the room. How many of you, along with me, would proudly say this morning that you have uh, experienced much of God's wisdom through the wife God has blessed you with? I certainly have. Since 1998 when we got married and even a little before when we were dating, God has used her to, to encourage and, and point me to His truth in many ways. I'm thankful for Carolyn. Recently she shared a meme on Facebook that she shared because it, it is wisdom and I want to share it with you guys and see if it resonates with you like it did with me. It was a meme that said it's hard to hear God's voice when you've already decided what you want Him to say. Amen? Some of us don't hear God's truth because He's not saying what we want to hear. This is not just a meme on Facebook. This is biblical. Jesus Himself pointed out that when it comes to faith in Jesus, while facts and intellect are a part of it, sometimes there's a legitimate search for for truth, There's another factor involved. We call it the the will. Our desire. John 7.17 Jesus frankly said, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Our will plays a, a big part in our ability to receive God's truth. Would you agree? Good, I I hope so, because Jesus said it. I want to ask us a question this morning. As we we come here this morning, we're going to see Jesus' interaction with the leaders of Israel uh, through some frank conversation and then through a parable. And it would be easy to kind of detach ourselves and say, yeah, I'm really glad He taught them that lesson. They needed that. But what I want us to do this morning is to prepare our own hearts. And just to say, as, as we listen in, am I open to God's truth this morning? Are you open to God's truth? Where, wherever it leads, whatever it costs, are, are we open? Let's dive in with those questions in mind. Mark eleven twenty seven. 27. As they came again to Jerusalem, this is Jesus and His disciples during Passion Week, heading... For the cross, later that week, ministering along the way. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now, most of you who had civics class know that our country has three branches of government, right? What are they? <coughs> right on, right on. We've got some <laughs> folks in <that> know- <laughs> I'm very laughing. It was maybe not as clear as some would have liked, but I heard so I heard them in there. When we read in here the the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, does anybody know what those three branches comprised in Israel's life? The Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, the religious. Supreme Court, if you will, the the guardians of religious life in Israel. There are representatives from all three branches of the Sanhedrin coming to Jesus as the official guardians of Israel to ask Him a question. The question is this, 
to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, what things are they talking about? If you've been with us a few weeks or reading through the gospel, you know it's been an eventful week in Jerusalem. Bill, Bill walked us through how he had a triumphal entry as the humble king on a, a donkey, and he received praise of the people openly and did not stop them. Okay, that's one thing. He, he went on to add to that. He, he flipped tables and, and threw people out of the temple to cleanse the abuse that was going on there. Those are the things they're talking about. Who gave you the authority to do that? And, and where did you get this authority? Who gave you this authority? Now, let me ask you a question. Are they genuine seekers of truth who, once he answers that question, will say, oh, okay, then we'll follow in line with what you're up to. If you don't know, I heard those answers. Go with me and we'll, we'll see. Verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, let me ask the parents in the room, when somebody says, answer me, <laughs> maybe you've been there with your kids, you, you're talking to them and you're asking them a question and nobody's talking. It's the parent, the one in authority that has the authority to say, answer me, right? Hopefully the kids aren't saying that to the parents, right? So... <laughs> When Jesus says this, he's hinting at, at his own authority. He said, essentially, you're trying to catch me on the horns of a dilemma. I'm going to throw one out there for you, and I want you to answer me. Verse 31 shows what's going on in their, their hearts. They, they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? If, if John's baptism was from heaven of God, why, why didn't you guys believe him? But on the other side, you know, this is like those two guys in the cartoons on the shoulder. On the, on the other side, uh, if we say from man, well, they were afraid of the people in the crowd for all the people held that John really was a prophet. You see, they're mixed in their motives. They refuse to acknowledge it on the one hand, but they're afraid of the people on the other. So they answered Jesus, verse 33, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What's going on here? I believe these men came to Jesus playing games. And when, when folks come to God playing games, not really interested or willing to hear his truth and follow it, we shouldn't expect to get much truth from him. He knows when we're playing games, but, but what's going on with these guys? I believe, based on where we're going in this passage, they're trying to protect some stuff in their lives. They're trying to protect their prestige, their position, and their profit. And they, they know that acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah could take, take all of that away. They're also showing this fear of what other people think that's paralyzing them from answering. 
I think there is a cost to discipleship. I know there is. Jesus said to count the cost in Luke chapter 14 before you become a disciple. It's a cost they were not willing to pay. There's great irony here if you've been with us throughout the book of Mark. They're afraid of losing things, but we know what Jesus had said. If any man seeks to save his life, he will lose it. But if any man loses his life for my sake and the sake of the Gospels, he will keep it. Right? And we know from history that Jerusalem, the temple in A.D. 70, was destroyed. And Israel as a nation was scattered. These men were not willing to pay the cost of embracing Jesus Christ. There's some quotes here that I think are valuable. One came from a scholar named Charles Erdman. When he looked at this passage, he said this. He said, honest doubters are deserving of sympathy. I'm glad he said that because I've been there. Have any of you ever been there in your walk with Jesus where you had questions that you didn't know the answers to? And sometimes they push you to the brink where do I believe in all of this or not? I've been there. Two years at Bible college, I was there. There's such a thing as honest doubters who are seeking for truth. And, and we honest doubters take that to, to God's Word and, and, and seek the answers. Honest doubters are deserving of sympathy. Charles Erdman goes on, he says, but professed seekers after truth who are unwilling to accept the consequences of belief should expect to receive no further light. He's getting back to the will again. It's no longer about the intellect at at that point. It's about what will it cost. It makes me think about one of the folks that was uh, saved early on in the ministry of the church next door. When we first shared Jesus with her, she said, you know what? My heart says yes, but my head says no. I said, why? She said, I don't want to give control over to the Lord. And I said, well, I'm not here to push you. I'm just here to share. That's where I found the ultimate meaning, and it's only in Him. You you pray through it. Two weeks later, she called and said, yes. I said, yes, what? She said, yes. I embrace Him as my Lord and Savior. But she knew this tension. Uh, Another man, Alan Cole, said it this way, their question was not true or false, but safe or unsafe. Safe or unsafe. And I think about that. That is a poor way to ascertain truth in our lives. But some of us do that at times. Is, is this safe or unsafe with the world around me? If I believe this thing that Jesus said and follow it, is it safe or unsafe? And then if we see it's unsafe, we pull back. Right? Sad thing is some churches are even doing this today as they look at God's Word and reinterpret it. They may not admit to it, but that's the question that's happening. It's not about true or false. It's about is this safe or unsafe. If we teach this, what will the culture around us think? What will they say? What will they do? Billy Graham in the 1950s at one of his revivals talked about Nailing our colors to the mast. That's an old term from the days when wooden ships used to sail the the oceans of the world. And you'd have a mast and you'd put your country's colors up there if you wanted to represent what country or group you were a part of. But sometimes you'd see an enemy ship approaching and somebody in charge of those colors would get over there quickly and pull them down. Because you didn't want to get bombed. Listen. 
where where he went with that is sometimes that that may have been a, a good military strategy to protect your your boat. It is never a good strategy in your walk with Christ to pull the colors down because you are ashamed of Christ, because you are ashamed of of God's word. I want to ask us: Have we counted the cost? Have we nailed the colors of Christ to the mast? of our ship, and are we willing to keep it there wherever we sail in this life? Whoever is around us, have I counted the cost? I want to talk to the young people in the room, because sometimes we think this is reserved for later in life. I'm going to do my thing now, and later in life I'm going to get it with God. I want to tell you guys about a a man named Jonathan Edwards. How many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards? Okay, what, what first comes to mind when when you think of Jonathan Edwards, if you know that name. A sermon he preached called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God about the realities of hell and our great need for Christ as our Savior to save us from there. God used that sermon so powerfully that it said people in the room were holding on to their pews so that they would not be dragged into hell. Some of them almost felt as though they smelled smoke. It became so real. Many gave their lives to Jesus. Now, Jonathan Edwards, later in his life, but his walk with Christ did not start later in life. As a teenager, he wrote something down. And I'd encourage you to give this a Google. 70 resolutions for his life with Christ. Now, I know some of us hear resolution, and right away our hackles get up because I can't do anything in my own power. And I agree. I agree. He prefaced these resolutions, paraphrasing with Lord, in so much as you help me in your power, by the power of the Spirit, I strive to live in these ways. And young people, I want to tell you two of those resolutions. Uh, One was, and I'm just paraphrasing here, that when I get to that day day of my death and I'm facing death down, I want to live today in such a way that I have no regrets looking back. That was one thing as a teenager he wrote down. Uh, Another one he said was, I will do nothing today that I would not do if it were my last day here on earth. There are 68 more of those as a teenager. Think about the, the way that shaped his life. I want to talk to you students. How do, how do you count the cost at school these days? Well, number one, you follow God's commands. You, you follow His His Word. Number one, come to Jesus as your Savior and Lord and walk in relationship with Him. But then when God makes a command, like about not being part of sexual immorality, I, I think about a, a kid at Cedar Point, the roller coaster park in Ohio, that had his colors on his mask boldly. He was wearing a shirt that said, Virginity Rocks. (laughs) Like, dude, there's there's a guy who who is posting his colors on his mask. Maybe you say that that ship has sailed in my life. God is a God of grace. Come back to Him. Repent of that and say, Lord, help me from this point forward to pursue Your will in my sexual life. No matter what the students around me talk about, push towards me. What about your time in God's Word? I, I thought about what if we had a generation of Christ followers who, who were willing to, to spend time in God's Word at their lunch break. And, and here's an even further step of faith. 
Not on the phone, because that's easy to hide, but take an actual Bible in there. And have your quiet time in front of your friends. That's, that's posting your, your colors to your mask. That may, may spark some questions. But it's not just those moral things that we do or don't do. It, it's that walking with Christ, and it's how we love all the people around us. I know sometimes we're tempted to get into these cliques and there's this group that doesn't like this group and some, some, some kids are just left out of all the groups. As a Christ follower, you want to be the one that loves all the people in all the groups. You, you don't agree with all of them, but you love them all and you show them the love of Christ. Would you students be able to, they're willing in Christ's power to, to post those colors? We don't know how much time we have left here on this earth. Sometimes we think I'm going to wait on that till later, but I'm telling you, Friday, I was taking Jaden into his basketball camp in Prescott on 89A, and we looked on the other side. We saw the carnage of, of that accident that many of you have heard about. Such destruction of vehicles. And I looked at Jaden and I said, oh man, I'm sure at least one person died there. And I thought about the, the folks in that accident. They just woke up. It was another Friday, you know. No idea what was coming. We don't know when our time is coming. I want to put an asterisk on that conversation too. Someone who watches the church next door online sent a prayer request about this to our prayer line this week. She, she worked with the father who was in the car with a two-year-old and a four-year-old who passed away. She was a co-worker of his, and she said, please pray for his wife, Jen, and, and please pray for the two- and four-year-old who are now in stable condition. And I said, we will pray, and I'd ask you to commit to that with me. I told her also, if you find out a way that our church can bless that family, please let me know. Let me know. We don't know when, when the time is coming. Grown-ups, what's posts in our colors look like? Well, think about the workplace. There's some things we're not going to do if we walk with Christ faithfully, right? That conversation slandering that coworker. you're not going to jump in on that. You're going to rise above that, right? That boss that treats you far with far less appreciation than he should or she should, you're going to still work with all your heart, might, soul, and strength for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your ultimate master. And Lord willing, as people see that, they're going to ask, what's up with you, man? Why don't you just slack off a little? This guy don't care about you. You say, because I've got a Savior and Lord who gave his life for me, and I walk with him. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about him. Have we counted the costs? These men in this situation were not willing to, are we? He goes on and tell them a personal parable. He, he will not answer their question straight, but he's going to provide some, some hidden answers within this, this parable. Watch this. He began to speak to them in parables. 12.1 A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, Jesus' listeners would be familiar with this idea 
A parable is taking something familiar and using it to teach a spiritual truth. Because in Galilee, there were many lands owned by foreign landowners. They'd, they'd set up a vineyard, the grapes, the tower, the press, all that. And then they'd go back to their country. And they'd send messengers or come back to get rent, part of the crop, every so often. They knew about this, but this is a parable. So let me ask you a couple questions. For those of you who, who know your Bibles, maybe especially Isaiah 5. 1 through 7, write that passage down. If you want the background of where Jesus is going, read it today. Who is the, the planter, the owner of this vineyard? God. Correct. Correct. Who is the, the vineyard? Israel. And who are the, the tenants? The, the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel, okay? So knowing that, let's, let's go back. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower. Leased it to tenants and went into another country. He goes on, verse 2. When this season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. Let me ask you, who are all these servants that the owner sent? Prophets? Yes, time and again throughout their history, if you know your Old Testament, God had sent messengers of the truth. And many, many times they were persecuted or killed. You want to see this firsthand. I, I read the book of Jeremiah this week. I'd encourage you to do that. He's called a weeping prophet, number one, because of what was going on to his nation, but I believe also, number two, because of what he experienced. He was sent by God with a message that this place, this temple, this city is going to be destroyed by Babylon of all nations, this wicked nation. And you're going into captivity for 70 years, and the people did not want to hear that. You're not supportive of our country. They wanted nothing to do with his message. And you, you read through the book and find the ways they treated him. Some of you are saying, hey, wait a second, isn't Jeremiah kind of long? Yeah, it's the longest book in the Bible. Not by chapters, that's Psalms, but by words, it's Jeremiah. But it's shorter than a lot of the novels we read. And Maybe you look at a book that size like me and say, wait a second, it's easy to get lost in the woods when you go through a book like that to start reading and then a couple chapters in, you're like, oh, where am I? <laughs> Let me encourage you to do a couple things. Number one, read it through once. Ask God to speak to you through the Holy Spirit. But number two, God has provided teachers to help us with things like that. And I want to recommend a book that's helped me greatly, especially with some of those Old Testament books that maybe we think of as obscure or we're afraid to go into. Irving L. Jensen wrote a book called Survey of the Old Testament. After you read Jeremiah through and ask God first to speak to you, open that book. And what Irving does in three or four pages for each book is helps give you an overview. Kind of the, the big hooks to hang the truth on, as Pastor Paul used to say. And then you dive back in and you see how this section fits with this section and your understanding is greater. But Jeremiah knew. Persecution is one of God's workers. If you ever find yourself discouraged in the ministry God has called you to, read Jeremiah. He knows on a far greater plane than, than most of us ever will.
But Jesus goes on. He had still one other, the, the owner, the planter, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Who is this beloved son that the owner sent? Jesus Christ. He's predicting what is about to happen just days later. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now we talked about A.D. 70, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the scattering of Israel. When he says the vineyard will be temporarily given to others, what is that talking about? Especially if you know Romans 9 through 11. Gentiles. Not to the exclusion of all people in Israel. There will be a, a remnant of Israel, Peter among them and others. But, but in large part, the, the church of Jesus Christ is Gentile. Read Romans 9 through 11. Well, let me ask you a question. Is, is God done with Israel as a nation? No. No. I'm going to quote somebody that sums this up Beautifully, we're going to talk about the cornerstone in a moment. That's what the stone is here. Thomas Constable says this, After God removes the church from the earth, the stone will return to the earth and Israel will accept him. Then he will complete Israel. And Israel will, during the millennium, function as the temple that God intended her to be. He will then bring blessing to the whole earth through Israel. God is faithful even in His discipline. This generation reaped the harvest of their rejection, but God is faithful nonetheless. Jesus goes on to talk to these leaders. Verse 10, He says, Have you not read this Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who is the stone that the builders rejected? Jesus. They arrested him and crucified him. But it says it has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. When did many realize that the one they had rejected became the cornerstone? After the resurrection. That's why it says this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. I want us to think about that. We talked about nailing our colors to the mast. Many of us relate to Peter uh, because we know of times when he took the colors down. And we can think of times where we've done that. But Acts chapter 2, something had changed. One thing was he had the Holy Spirit in him. What was the other that had happened between his previous falling and Acts chapter 2 when he preached in Jerusalem of the risen Lord and Savior. It was the resurrection. It changed him. It changed him. 
I think about that. And I think about uh, fictional history that I recommend that I'm reading through right now. You guys know the Left Behind guys, Tim, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins? They also wrote a book called Mark's Story. You know how we've talked about Mark was a, an associate of Peter and they had a relationship? They kind of flesh that out. They take known historical facts and admittedly fill in some gaps, but there's a conversation in there. After Peter's bold message in Jerusalem, he's talking with young John Mark, and Mark says to him, weren't you afraid preaching that? And, and Peter, in the novel, a novel admittedly, this is, that's all it is, but he says to Mark, when Mark says, weren't you afraid, he said, Mark, if you had seen everything that we have seen, would you ever fear another human again? <laughs> I love that. I love that the resurrection changed it. It was marvelous in Peter's eyes and the eyes of the rest of the remnant and the many Gentiles. How would these leaders respond? Verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And we got to give them credit for at least that. They realized it was about them. Okay? I, I saw a meme this week with a guy that had kind of a funny face. He was like this. And, and the meme said, when somebody in church yells out, That's right, preacher. And you know it's about them. At least this guy, these guys realized the parable was about them. But they didn't respond properly. They sought to arrest him, but their fear of the people continued to hold them up until an opportune time. So they left him and went away. And I think about a couple things here. Jesus' parable, in a parabolic kind of way, answered some of their questions. If they would have received it and responded... What authority did he have? He was the son of the owner. He was the heir, the son of God. And when we're faced with the authority of God within his word, the Bible today, we, we face the same choice these guys did. Refuse the authority or respect the authority. Who's the authority in our lives? Is it God and his word or is it me? How do we live? Also, you remember when they realized it was the son, the heir, what they say? Let's kill him. Then it will be ours. You hear that? We can seek to steal his blessings for our own personal glory, our own kingdom. We could do as we should as tenants of his blessings, steward his blessings for his glory and the good of others. Okay. And lastly, we can grow up all around the things of Christ. We can grow up in church. We can grow up reading the Bible. We can grow up listening to podcasts about Jesus. But it is possible to be around all of those things and never come to the point where we personally embrace Him as our Savior and Lord. And if that's where we're at this morning... We're going to squander all those blessings away of all that we've heard and all that we've been exposed to of His truth. Rather, 
Let's turn to Him in repentance and faith and surrender those blessings to His purposes. They were not willing to count the cost, are we? Let me read a quote. And I'm going to ask you to see who knows who said it. It's a bit lengthy, but it's worth it. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of His Son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Who wrote that? No. Bonhoeffer. A, a pastor who died in a German concentration camp on April 9th, 1945 because he was one of the few bold enough to compare what Hitler was doing with God's word and to stand against it. When he talks about grace that follows Jesus in obedience, he knows firsthand what he's talking about. Now, when we talk about costly grace, are, are we implying that we are somehow saved by our works? No. We are saved by grace through faith. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that can cleanse our sin. We turn to Him in repentance and faith, but we are saying grace is more than just forgiveness. You read the little book of Titus in the New Testament. Paul talks about something that I call three-dimensional grace. Yes, it washes us. But it also teaches us in His power to say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness in our lives. That is biblical grace. Costly grace. Are we counting the cost? I ask that question and maybe it's easy to think, yeah, God can use a guy like Bonhoeffer or, or Peter or Mark, but sometimes the enemy plants seeds in us what, what difference can he use me to make? Well, a couple of things I want to encourage you with. Uh, number one, it's not just you. You're part of a body if you're a believer. And it's as the spiritual gifts come together that God does his best work. We all need each other. And it's as we operate in our realms that, that God, God works mightily kind of like the, the NBA Finals. If you didn't know, our sons are in there. They're up 2-0. And I think the Bucks are in trouble. The Bucks are in trouble because they, they got a, a quandary going on. When Giannis was out at the end of the Hawks series, the rest of their team worked really good. They, they played really good and finished off that series and won. But now that Giannis is back, he's doing great, but the rest of the team isn't doing great. 
So they got to figure out how do we get Giannis and the team working together or they're going to be in trouble. That's good news for us. Game three tonight. But in the same way, they're going to have to work as a team to be all they can be. That's how the church is. You're not in this alone. Reach out to a brother or sister and realize we're on this mission to live a full life in Jesus and bring others along for the ride together. Together. But last but not least, when we ask the question, uh, who am I? I want to propose a, a better question when we think about how could God use me. The question is not, who am I? The question is, who is I am? Because he's the one who lives in us. It's his power that can do his mighty work in and through our lives. I'll close with a quote from D.L. Moody, man who founded the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. He said, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, 40 years learning he was nobody, and 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. That's, that's a quote I can relate to. and gives us hope in the power of God. Lord, thank you for this moment in history where your love was bold enough to speak truth to your chosen people, the leaders of those people. This world spins us a lie that, that love cannot include bold truth because bold truth is sometimes offensive and hard to hear, but your word says love rejoices with the truth and you love us too much to snow us over. Lord, I pray that we would do more than just say, yeah, Jesus, you were right with those guys, but move on to say, what about me? What about our church? Are, are we refusing your authority or are we respecting your authority? Are we seizing on to your blessings for our own glory or are we stewarding them for your glory and the good of others? If there's anybody in this room that's, that's grown up around Christ and the Bible and church but has never embraced Him, I want to invite you today, do not squander that blessing. He calls to you today. Come to Him. Embrace Him as your Savior and your Lord. I know the, the church has many broken, broken people in it and we, we fail and we fall and we sin at times. I'm also reminded of the words of Ruth Bell Graham when, when she asked a friend, how do we tell people about Jesus when that's the case? And her mentor, missionary friend said, tell the person we're not offering you the church, we're offering you Jesus Christ. Look at him. Look at who he is. Look at what he's done for you. Come to him in grace, in faith and repentance for his grace. Lord, I pray that you'd work this out in our lives as you wish through your spirit this week. Whether it's at school or work, our neighborhood, our vacations. Help us to post your colors to our mast. Live for you and be ready to speak for you as opportunity arises. Lord, I pray even as we take our offering this morning, it would be for your glory, your kingdom. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, as we close this morning, you prepare to go out. There may be some in the room saying, what in the world is a cornerstone? It's the most important stone in the entire structure. It's foundational. As Pastor Paul reminded us a couple years ago, it, as you place that cornerstone, it sets the direction for the entire building, both vertically and horizontally. When we embrace Christ as our cornerstone, we say, Lord, you set the direction of my life, of our church, and I'll follow you in faith. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord, thank you that you are our cornerstone, our foundation. This world is shifting sand, but you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.